Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. While those are being passed out, uh, if you missed last week's uh, doctrinal lesson, it is up and available on our podcast channel where we talked about uh, spirit baptism, being baptized in the spirit. You're welcome to go back and listen to that. And that kind of is the precursor to what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, before we do that, let me mention a couple of things. Yesterday, uh, our elders had a chance to sit with our women's ministry leadership team and kind of hear a report on all the wonderful things that have been taking place on Mondays and Tuesdays with uh, the Bible study, the book study, the adorned book study. And I think it's like 65, 68 ladies have been regularly attending on Monday afternoons and Tuesday evenings. Working through a book study is fantastic what God's doing. We heard some really encouraging things, got a chance to, to reflect on what God is doing in the women and in the women's ministry at our church. And we're gr- very grateful for that. You continue to pray for all of those ladies uh, that are participating not only in leadership, but, but where we go next in terms of developing discipleship groups, and uh, continuing studies. So we need to pray for our ladies. We're excited about what God is doing in the homes and in the marriages and in the families as a result of those studies. Um, I also want to announce to you that on Easter Sunday, many of you have asked, we are going to move back to the commons and have a worship service in the commons for Easter Sunday, April the 9th. It's fitting that we should make that announcement today. I think if, if we were following a liturgical calendar, today is Ash Wednesday. Am I right there? After Fat Tuesday, I think they had a big celebration down in New Orleans yesterday. Um, I, I don't necessarily observe Lent in the traditional fashion of that, but I think it's a good reminder that 40 days from now we'll be celebrating Easter. And I think last year was a tremendously encouraging Easter Sunday service. We were able to gather as an entire congregation of people. I think there were a little more than 600 people gathered in the commons to celebrate with us as a church family. I I do want to say something about that, that that one thing that we're going to ask that that we do a little different in this year's Easter that we did last year's. Last year, our kind of goal was... COVID had happened, and we had all been separated out and, and, and weren't able to gather back, and it was really encouraging for us to all gather as a church for an Easter Sunday service. But this year, we don't want the focus so much to be on us as a church gathered for an Easter Sunday service as we want it to be focused on those who need to know Jesus being there for an Easter Sunday service hearing the gospel. And so we'd ask you to invite people who need to know Jesus Uh, In the coming days, on Sundays and on Wednesdays, I'm going to ask you to think of at least one person that you know that needs the gospel, and I'm going to ask you to invite them for that service. And then there are some things we're going to do in terms of structure there at the commons and in plans and leadership in the coming weeks, where essentially we're going to ask every one of our church members to participate in some capacity of either... Uh, at, the, at the service, welcoming folks, making sure that they have information. There's an opportunity to respond. There's an opportunity for them to hear the gospel. And so we want it, instead of to be turned inward, where we're just celebrating what God's done in our lives, and we're going to do that, we want it to kind of be outward, where we're inviting people who need to know Jesus. And it's fitting that we should do that in the community. 
and we're at the community commons. So just want to say that out loud, and you'll hear more about that in the coming uh, in coming weeks. All right, so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're looking at the, the topic, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and the sign gifts, particularly speaking in tongues. What do we do with this? And we talked last week, and I'm not going to repeat last week, about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think what's going on in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 is a little different than what the book of Acts discusses about speaking in tongues. I'll explain that as as we get further along into our text. Uh, We're going to read a fair amount of Scripture tonight. Uh, I think it sets the framework for what we're trying to accomplish and trying to make sense of. Let me say at the outset, uh, I am going to tell you where I stand on these issues uh, and, and, you know, that's kind of where what I do in leading our church on this topic. I will say that this, I perceive, is one of those secondary theological issues or secondary doctrinal issues. What I mean by that is uh, what you particularly believe about speaking in tongues and the viability of that today is not a salvation issue, okay? The doctrine of the deity of Christ or the atonement or salvation issues whether you believe speaking in tongues is a sign gift for today or that it went away is not, I believe, a salvation issue. It is an important issue. We'll walk through it. You may not be convinced by what I share with you tonight. That's okay. We don't all have to agree on everything. I'll come back to kind of a practical application, how we live that out as a church body at the end. But uh, nevertheless, this is where I stand on the issue and what I think Paul is teaching on in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Let me give you six principles, and we'll fill in the blanks as we go and read as we go. Six principles for interpreting the Holy Spirit and His spiritual gifts in the life of the church. The first principle is this. Spiritual gifts should be interpreted in light of cultural, that is with Corinth, cultural and theological context. We need to keep both of those things in mind when we read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Read with me, if you will, in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, he's going to go on, and we're going to read more about the spiritual gifts specifically in the next verses. The reason I bring this up this way is because we need to remember the context. The the letter to the church at Corinth is not like the best letter in all of the Bible. If you go back and read through it, it's a letter written to a church that was having a lot of problems. They were having problems in the area of how they disciplined or did not discipline others. They had issues where members were at odds with other members, and they wanted to arbitrate their differences in a court of law. They were having issues with regard to their sexual purity and what they were affirming in the life of the church. If you read on in chapter 15, there were some that were having difficulty believing in the resurrection. And this is a church that Paul planted, loved, preached at, But the discussion of spiritual gifts is in the context of a church that was dealing with a fair amount of discord and problems. And it appears as if the difference of opinion and discord about spiritual gifts was creating division. And so Paul is trying to let them know 
hey, uh, we, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to act with spiritual immaturity. So one thing that that should tell us is that the discord that can surround certain practices in our Christian faith is not something that should divide or not something that should divide in a way that creates discord within a local body of believers. That's not what, what these kind of conversations are supposed to do. Paul's very clear that he wants us as a body of believers, wanted Corinth to be unified, to be together, not to be at odds, not to be fighting about this and fighting about that. That's a sign of spiritual immaturity. It's not what ought to be. Also, we need to remember that there was a lot of spiritualism, idolatry in Corinth. It was a very pagan place. And so some of the practices that I think Paul questions or critiques in the life of the church were things that maybe had been practiced in a pagan way and had been brought into the church. And so when Paul says this at the framework, he says, you know, no one speaking, uh, you need to understand verse 3, no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. He's laying a theological foundation. He's saying, listen, the bottom line, folks, is that we make sure that we believe Jesus is Lord. And if you've got people in your church that are saying Jesus is Lord, even if they're saying it in ways that may make you uncomfortable, even if that's the case, listen, they can't do that apart from the Holy Spirit. But if you're saying other things about Jesus that aren't theologically sound, then that's, that's not to be held as something that's to be practiced. So the theological framework is, listen, we want to make sure we elevate Jesus, we focus on Jesus appropriately, we're doctrinally sound, but we also don't want to be divided unnecessarily. So the theological and cultural context is important for us to grasp. Let me give you a second uh, principle. Number two, spiritual gifts come from God. They are for the good of the church, and they are to the glory of Christ. I mean, that, that is a basic outline for what spiritual gifts are supposed to be. Read with me in verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So where do gifts come from? They come from God. It's not up to you what spiritual gift you get. It's not up to me what spiritual gift I get. I didn't pray for one. I didn't ask God to give me a certain gift. God gave me the gifts he decided to give me. Same thing is true with you. You didn't, you, you didn't wake up one day and say, I want that spiritual gift, and God gave it to you. It's not the way gifts work. God orchestrates who gets what gift. They come from God. And why do they come from God? Look there at verse 7. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the praise of the person who's the gifted. No. For the common good. For the common good of the church. The purpose of the spiritual gift that you have is not your glory. It's not your platform, it's not your position, it's not my platform, not my position, not my glory. The purpose of the spiritual gift is for the good of the body. If the gift doesn't build up the body, it's not fulfilling the purpose for which God gave it. Okay, It's for the common good, for the edification of the body of Christ. Continue reading with me. To one, verse 8, is given through the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom, to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, to another, faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, 
to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of the tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, tonight I don't plan to go into a specific definition of all the spiritual gifts. I might get to that in the coming weeks. I might not. We'll just wait and see how I'm going to lay out the rest of our Doctrine of the Holy Spirit lesson. Just know that the gifts come from the Holy Spirit, and there are varieties of them. Pick up with me in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one Spirit. Bottom line is this, why do we have the spiritual gifts? We have the spiritual gifts for the good of the body, because we are members of one body. And, and I think in a very broad sense, he's saying the church universal is one body of Christ. But specifically, he's talking about the local body of believers being one body with Christ being the head. What's the purpose of the gifts? For the common good to bring glory to Christ. The focus of spiritual gifts in the church is to ultimately lead us as a family of believers to glorify Jesus in the way that we behave and what we believe and how we act. That's the, that's the undercurrent that leads us into understanding, okay, how do we then interpret the rest of these particular spiritual gifts? Verses 14 through 31 lead us to the third uh, principle. It's this. Spiritual gifts, why do we have them? Spread out the work, ministry, and service of the body of Christ. We're going to read an extended passage. Just bear with me. Verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. The foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. That would, make it, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we, disp- we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration of various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Then he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. So the church is a body. And all of us represent a function within the body. I'm going to say a couple of things as your pastor for a couple of minutes. I'm going to meddle for a moment, okay? But I can do that. It's Wednesday night. I hope you'll be okay with me meddling. 
Uh, here's the first element of meddling. If you are a member of Wilkesboro Baptist Church, you have an obligation to worship Jesus regularly. Hebrews 10, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit or manner of some. You have an obligation to worship regularly. You also have an obligation to serve within the life of the church. Uh, some, um, some of those in theology, scholars and pastors have put it this way, that church membership is indeed a, a functional office in the life of the church. I don't know that the Bible goes so far as to absolutely claim that. Bottom line is, though, that there's an expectation if you are a forgiven follower of Jesus, you have been gifted by the Holy Spirit, therefore you have an obligation in the life of the church. And I want to say this very lovingly, your obligation is not merely to sit in a seat and learn. Your obligation is not merely to attend a class and listen. Your obligation as a Christian is to find your spiritual gift and serve. And, and if you're not engaged in that functional obligation to serve in the way God has gifted you to serve, then you are falling short of what God expects of you, and you're leaving our church short of what is needed. That's why the principle is God gave spiritual gifts to spread out the work of ministry. Do you know whose job it is to minister in the church? It's a trick question. Some churches would say, that's what we pay a pastor for. We pay a pastor to minister to the church. And guess what? It is my job. I do minister in the life of the church. Al ministered here for 33 years. My dad's pastor churches and ministered. Vince pastor churches and ministered. But in Ephesians 4, in another spiritual gift passage, the Apostle Paul says, it is the job of the pastors and teachers and leaders of the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The reason every Christian is gifted is because if every Christian is using their spiritual gift to serve, then the ministry that needs to be done by the hundreds and hundreds of people or to the hundreds and hundreds of people within our congregation can effectively be done. If myself, if me and our paid staff and our lay elders are the only ones doing ministry, some of you are going to get left out. It's just not possible for us to be the only ones to minister in our church. Now, gratefully and gloriously, that's not the testimony of Wilkesbury Baptist Church. I look out across the room, and if I asked every one of you to stand who has a functional area of service in the church, it would be more than half of our room. Many of you, most of you, are finding ways, have found ways to serve in the life of the church. I say amen. But you've been gifted so that all of us, every single one of us, has a functional way to use our spiritual gift to serve. And Paul makes it very clear that there's not a, a hierarchy of gifts where one is better that makes another a Christian better than another Christian. Well, he goes to great pains to say, no, that's not, that's not it at all. Every role is important. Um, if you question whether every member is important, how about breaking your thumb? Anybody broken their thumb? I know some of you, have, you had to have broken your thumb. Is it easy to function without a thumb or with a broken arm or with a broken leg? No, every part of your body is important. Can I get an amen? None of us want any part of our body to be out of kilter. It's the same way in the life of the church. Every part of our body is important. It, 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 you're needed. 
What do you need it for? Well, you need it because God gave you a gift. You're needed to build up the common good of the church, and you're needed to glorify Christ. Not better motivations than that throughout the ministries of the church. So you say, okay, well, what does that mean? Where, where, how do I figure out my gift? There are lots of different ways. There are spiritual gifts assessments we can give you, ways we can talk with you. One of the best things I like to do is just mention to people, hey, where do you feel a need to serve? Where do you feel good at serving? I mean, I, I, it's not my job to look at you and say, hey, this is where you need to serve, and I'm going to plug you in. I mean, I can do that. Our elders can do that. Our pastoral staff can do that. But we'd like to get a sense for what, what you're good at. I'll tell you funny, yesterday, as our, as our elders were meeting with our women's ministry leadership team, uh, we had a situation with one of our preschool teachers who had to go leave class to go pick up a sick kid. We didn't have anybody to call in the immediate moment to go down to that four-year-old classroom except Tad. And so I think his judgment for calling some of the people in our church old at 930 on Sunday was to spend about an hour with four-year-olds downstairs. And uh, that's not Tad's area of giftedness. He can do it. He loves the Lord. He loves kids. He loves our church family. So he did. He stepped in and hung out with four-year-olds for an hour. That's definitely not my area of giftedness. I'm going to tell you something. I could preach to hundreds or thousands. You put me in a room of 12 four-year-olds, and I, I am out of my element and scared to death. But some of you, for some of you in the life of the church, that's an area of giftedness. So the reason we have spiritual gifts is to spread out the ministry and work within the church for the larger body of the church. Let me give you uh, principle number four. Spiritual gifts matter, but they're less important than love. There's a reason Paul qualifies the very last verse of chapter 12, and I will show you a more excellent way. What's the excellent way? Even in our marriage, when Jean and I were married, we used this text as kind of an introduction or an invitation on our invitation. And it's used at weddings all the time. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver my my body to be burned, but have not love, I'm nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Spiritual gifts are important. It's good for you to know how you're gifted. You know what's most important for you to know? That God loves you and you're supposed to love others because God loves you. If we minister in the life of our congregation out of a heart of love, we are so far down the trail of where God wants us to be as Christians. That's what God wants from us. He wants what we do to be out of a sense of love, not a sense of obligation or duty or even 
calling, although all of those are important. Love is to be the undergirding reason why we do anything. Uh, I just want to tell you, I love my church. I love you as a congregation of people. I do what I do because I love you. You know, you're easy to love. My dad's pastored some churches and some people that weren't all that easy to love. I saw one of them Sunday. Uh, One of those fellas that that was in that deacon's meeting that asked my dad to leave. It's not easy sometimes. I don't have people like that here. You're easy to love. I hope I'm sort of easy to love as your pastor. But love ought to be the reason why we serve. I was talking with Eddie Mae Shoemaker the other day. She and many of you, I don't know who all helped with the meal the other week for the Carlos and Betty Pardue family. There's several people who helped with the meal. I was talking with Miss Eddie Mae about that, and she said, you know what, Pastor? If, if you ever need help, making sure that there's enough food at a meal, I can make food for everybody. I can cook for 100 if I need to. And you know, I, I don't think we're going to ask her to do that. But I'm going to tell you something. She could and she would. Do you know why? Because she loves people in our church. It's a reflection of her love. Boy, she's good at it too. If you've never had one of her pineapple cream pie, cream cakes or strawberry cakes, my goodness, you owe it to yourself to find a way to try one of those cakes before you die and go out of this world. It is outstanding. And she can cook, and many of you can. But she doesn't do that just simply because she's gifted. She does that because she loves. That's who we're supposed to be. We're to be motivated by love. Folks, if someone's hurting in and around you, don't wait and try to figure out, am I, am I gifted to help that person in that way? Just go help. Just go love them, okay? There are areas I'm not gifted in the life of the church. That's why God gave us the staff, and that's why God gave us lay elders. That's why God gave us deacons. That's why God gave us Sunday school teachers. Places I'm not good. But even if it's a place where I'm not good, I don't wait to figure out, am I really good at pastoral care before I go visit somebody in the hospital? No, we just love people, and we go make, make a visit. Go pray a prayer with somebody. Go encourage somebody. Why? Out of love. Uh, in another text of Scripture, love covers a multitude of sins. Amen? So love is most important. Okay, let's move to the next one. Chapter 14, spiritual gifts, including the sign gifts, are for the building up of the church. Now, here's the controversial section. I laid all that foundation so we get to the part where I know you want, okay, what do we do with chapter 14? Chapter 14 is one of the most challenging places in all of Scripture in terms of interpretation and application. So let's read it. Pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him but he utters the mysteries of the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or harp, do not give distinct notes, How will anyone know what is played? The bugle gives an indistinct sound. Who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, 
How will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you're eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. That is an important qualification verse. In whatever we do in the life of the church, the desiring of the manifestation of the Spirit in the life of the church, if it doesn't glorify Christ and build up the body, it's not really helpful. If it's a distraction to the ongoing ministry of the church or to the preaching of the gospel, it's not helpful. Whatever we want God to do in our midst, we want God to do things in our midst that point to Jesus and that build up the church. When it becomes a distraction, it can become a a, a problem in terms of helping the church move forward. That, I think, is part of what was going on in Corinth. There were a lot of things that weren't very well done, speaking in tongues in Corinth, and there was an interpretation, and there was confusion, and there was disorder in the worship service. And essentially what it was doing is it was creating a level of conflict and a lack of clarity for the gospel being preached. So it was creating a distraction. Paul says it's got to build up the church. Uh, probably the, the most challenge, one of the most challenging paragraphs in all the Bible is the next one, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power interpret, to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And that is a, that is a quote regarding Gentiles speaking about the glories of the gospel to the Jewish people. And it's a reminder to the Jewish people that because the Gentiles come to faith, it's a warning and it's an invitation back to the Jewish people to respond to God. And, and he says, but even then they will not listen. Says the Lord, verse 22, Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare that God really is among you. Okay, this section of Scripture is challenging because Paul says, I speak in tongues more than all of you. Paul says, I pray in tongues. What in the world is he talking about? Uh, Let me tell you what I think is going on, and it's what I think. Scholars other than me differ and disagree, and it's fine if you don't necessarily agree with my take on this. I think what was happening in Corinth was something different than what took place in the book of Acts. I think most of what took place in the book of Acts was intelligible speaking in other languages or intelligible hearing in other languages that was for the advance of the gospel. 
I think in that sense, speaking in tongues still happens in some places in the, in the world today. I think there are times God gives an extra supernatural measure of grace for somebody to learn another language. I think that absolutely can and does, do, does continue to take place. I think what is going on in 1 Corinthians is something defined a little bit differently. Paul describes it as unintelligible speech. In other words, even in praying in tongues, he said sometimes it's unknown languages. I don't know what I'm saying. I don't, it's kind of what Paul's saying. I'm not speaking with my mind. I'm speaking with my heart. I'm speaking with my spirit. And he says that shouldn't happen in the church unless there's someone to interpret what is being said. Otherwise, it's babbling and it's confusion and it's heavy metal rock music. Right? There's some concerts. You may have been to them. I've heard them. You can't hear what they're saying. Sounds like garbledness. Sounds like made-up speech, pig Latin or something like that. Well, if that happens in the life of the church, Paul says, if there's an unintelligible tongue to be spoken in the church, there needs to be someone who can interpret that unintelligible tongue. Otherwise, here's what happens. Everybody's attention is drawn to the speaker in tongues, and they're put on a platform and raised up as, man, some super spiritual wonder person in the life of the church. But if there's no interpretation, there's no building up of the church. If there's no building up of the church, then the expression of the gift is all about the gifted and not about the common good of the church, which is the whole purpose of spiritual gifts, and not about the glory of Christ. So, My take on what's going on here is it's something a little different than what's going on in the book of Acts. Now, let me move to point number six, principle number six. Spiritual gifts will cease when no longer necessary. That comes from chapter 13, verses 8 through 13. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. Tongues, they'll cease. For knowledge, it will pass away. Let me pause and make a conversation about the sign gifts in particular. The sign gifts were those supernatural expressions of God working in the church in the early days. So speaking in tongues, prophetic utterances, and by that I mean there are two ways to look at prophecy. There's the foretelling prophecy. That's what I do, what I believe God's gifted me to do, to be able to say this is what God says and this is what it means. That, that, there, there's an, that's prophetic. That is prophetic from the Old Testament. It's prophetic in the New Testament. There's also a foretelling prophetic utterance that's different than that. In other words, someone being able to say, okay, this is what God's going to do in the world. That did happen in the New Testament. You could go back to the book of Acts and read the story of Agabus the prophet who said something about to Paul. He said, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound and you're going to be arrested and you're going to be put in prison. It's a prophetic utterance, a prophetic utterance in the New Testament. That was affirmed. That's exactly what happened. Paul was bound and sent to prison. His prophetic utterance came true. Agabus's did. Okay? There, there is that element of it. That would be a sign gift, a supernatural utterance of God through a person. And there's also the sign gift of miracles or of someone being healed. The apostles had that. Peter and James and John healed. They touched people and they were healed. Read the book of Acts. took place. Paul did that. I mean, they, those were supernatural occurrences of God to affirm the message of the gospel. All right? First uh, Corinthians 13 says, Prophecies... Knowledge and tongues will cease. Now, uh, some of, some of the, the thing as Baptists, 
we're troubled by some of the uh, more outward presentations of the sign gifts. If someone stood up tonight and started speaking in tongues, it would shake most of us, if not all of us. And I'd be saying, uh, hold on a second, we need an interpreter. Okay? And, and so we're troubled by that. And so we've tried to make sense of, okay, where do these gifts fit into the life of the church? Because it would be very comfortable for us, for you and me, if those gifts went away. All right? If, if those gifts weren't viable gifts for today, tongues and healings and, and uh, manifestations of the Spirit in, in that supernatural way, then it would be really easy for us, really comfortable for us as Baptists who have no temptation to become Baptocostal. It would, make, it would be comfortable. It would be comfortable for our Christianity, okay? And so one of the ways that he, 1 Corinthians 13 has been interpreted is that when the perfect has come, that's the canon of Scripture. When the canon of Scripture has come, then these gifts will go away. That's, this one, that's, that's the cessationist position on the sign gifts. I understand the tendency toward that understanding of, of, of 1 Corinthians 13, 8 and following. I just don't think that's what Paul's talking about as what, at all. I don't think he is referencing at all when the perfect comes, when the canon of Scripture comes, Tongues will go away, prophecies will go away, the sign gifts will go away. I don't think that's what he's saying. Read with me if you will. For we know in part, verse 9, and we prophesy in part, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. I think Paul's talking about heaven. I, I think what he means is, and you may disagree, and that's fine. I, I'm not, I could be wrong. We still live in a free country where we have the right to have differences of opinion and be wrong. Uh, you have the right to not agree with me and maybe be wrong. I have the right to not agree with you and maybe be wrong on that. But I think he's talking about heaven. I think quite simply, he's saying when the perfect comes, there won't be a need for tongues in heaven because everybody will understand everything. There's no need for interpretation of tongues, no need for speaking in tongues. There won't be a need for knowledge because we'll be right there in the presence of God. You're not going to need a preacher in heaven. Aren't you, aren't you amen? Worship services will not include preaching in heaven. They just won't. They won't be, it won't be necessary. We'll either have perfect understanding or be growing in understanding in the very presence of God. We'll be singing and praising and testifying. There won't be a need for prophecies, for knowledge, or for tongues in heaven. Obviously, there won't be a need for healings in heaven because we'll be whole, spiritually, physically, and in every way humanly possible. Okay? So that's what I think he's talking about. I think he's talking about when the perfect comes, when heaven comes, these will go away, which means I'm not a cessationist in the strict sense. I personally do not think that the gifts of tongues or healings or the gifts of prophecy have completely ended. Okay? Others may disagree with that. I don't think they have. Let me give you some takeaways and, and, the, reason, and the reason why I kind of don't think that way. This isn't so much a takeaway as it just is an observation. I think sometimes the work of God in our world ought to make us a little uncomfortable. I just think it should. If, if I can wrap my head and my practice and my theology around everything that God does in the world, 
then God's working in the world is not big enough and sufficient enough to bring about salvation of sinners all across the world. Okay? God is bigger than you and me. Now, with that said, the manifestations of these gifts, one of the reasons we're troubled by them, is they're practiced so unbiblically so often. There's a tendency to go to extremes. So let me give you the, the takeaways, and I'll explain what I'm talking about. The first takeaway is this. We must recognize that the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church is to point to Christ, glorify Christ, and accomplish redemption. That's the Holy Spirit's job. The spiritual gifts in the life of the church point to Jesus. If they point to the person or to the gifted, they're pointing to the wrong person. Okay? That, that is not the point. We, don't put, we shouldn't put people on pedestals regardless of the gifts we have. That is practiced in flawed ways in Pentecostal situations. It is practiced in flawed ways in Baptist life. Folks, we have Baptist platform heroes, preachers who have built mega churches, who they're put on platforms, they write books, their books get sold. And, and here's what happens. Much, too much honor has been given to some of those men. Some can handle it, some cannot. And the more they think it's about them and for them and for their glory, the dangerous tendency is for them to get caught up in themselves and fall and fail. The role of the Holy Spirit is to point to Jesus. The role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church is to glorify Christ. Christ gets the glory, not a man, not a woman, not a gifted. Not, that's, it's not about us. It's about glorifying Christ, and it is about the accomplishment of redemption. That's why Christ is glorified, because it, it, the person doesn't matter, whether it's Billy Graham or, or Billy Sunday or D.L. Moody or Chris Hefner or Vince Adams. It doesn't matter. What matters is the spread of the gospel and people coming to know Jesus. I'll give you the second takeaway. We should be biblical in interpretation and balanced in theological approach. In other words, we should avoid the extremes. Avoid the extremes. What do I mean, mean by biblical? The reason I'm not a strict cessationist is I just don't think the Bible makes any clear claim that healings, prophecies, and I don't mean revelation-level prophecies. I don't mean a prophecy on par with scriptural truth. The scripture's done. I don't think there are any utterances that come anywhere close to what scripture affirms in truth. Not at all. But I do think God can speak in unique ways through unique people in unique times in history. I think God could give visions to people. I think God could speak through a person in tongues. I, I think that that could happen. And the reason I think that could happen is I just don't find anywhere in Scripture where the Bible says those things have completely passed off the scene. All right? I think God can heal. He can heal. He does heal. Okay? Sometimes He heals supernaturally. Sometimes He heals through chemotherapy and radiation and surgery. I mean, we just got a report from, from a family that attend our church, Todd and Laura Poor, that their daughter Carly, who's dealt with some severe cancer, her cancer's in remission. Listen, that's an answer to prayer. It, it, was it a person who laid a hand on her and healed her, like a name it, claim it type, you know, religious? No. But God intervened in that situation. No doubt that God does. So one of the reasons I'm uncomfortable going so far as they've all gone away is I just don't think that's what the Scripture teaches. All right, But then that also means we need to be balanced in our theological approach. What do I mean by that? It means that you know, if we don't live in the extremes, we're going to be much more healthy as Christians. 
The extreme would be running down, running down and saying, I've got the gift of speaking in tongues, and bless God, I'm just going to exhibit that gift. The extreme is, is the Pentecostal version of that that says every Christian who's really a Christian will be able to speak in tongues. Paul made it very clear in chapter 12, not everybody speaks in tongues. And he made it very clear in chapter 14, if somebody does speak in tongues, there better be an interpreter. So I'm just going to tell you that wipes out about 98, 99% of the speaking in tongues that's been present in maybe your experiences or what we see and experience in life of the church. Because it's not about the gifted, it's about the building up of the body of Christ. The other thing I think that, that cautions us, I'm just going to be honest with you, I would be comfortable if those gifts had gone away. Okay? I just would be. You might be too. But it's okay if God makes us a little uncomfortable. All right? God's bigger than our level of comfort. We ought to be, we ought to be godly enough to say that. God can shake us. Let me give you the third takeaway. This is important. And uh, I've got like less than a minute, so I'll do my best. As a church, here's what comes down to us. As a church, we are obligated to practice order, clarity, and structure in our church service. Verse 40 of chapter 14, but all things should be done decently and in order. Didn't have time to unpack that next set of paragraphs. There's a lot there to uncover, so I don't want to try to do it. Paul's very clear. Everything should be done decently and in order. What does that mean for Wilkesboro Baptist Church? Generally and typically, the congregation of the church should follow the leaders of the church in the way the church is structured and the way spiritual gifts are practiced. That's what that means. Because if someone, and let me give you an example. Uh, a couple years back, it was not too long after we had reopened from COVID. There were some visitors to the church. Uh, they came to a worship service. They sat through the worship service, never seen them before, never seen them since. They came down at the invitation, and they looked me in the eye, and they said some kind of, like, uh, we, we sent some kind of prophetic utterance in your life and in your ministry. We want to pray a prayer of blessing over you. And they prayed for me, okay? It's a little bit odd. But I, I received that. Great, amen, thankful for that. Um, but I've not seen them since. I've not seen them again. If they had looked at me and said, Pastor, we'd really like to say something to the congregation this morning. You know what I would have said? No. You know why? Because I don't know them. I don't know what they're going to say. I don't know if I'm going to have to fix what they're going to say after the fact. I have no idea. There, there's, a, there's a process and there's an order that the church should be led in. I'm not going to speak in tongues, and I'm not going to lead us to speak in tongues. So it would not be well taken if somebody stood up in our church service Sunday and started babbling out in tongues. That would, that would not be well received by our congregation, even if somebody popped up and gave an interpretation. We'd have to have some conversations about that because that's not our typical practice at church, and what would it do? I'll be honest with you, that would distract from the worship of God and the preaching of the gospel here. No, maybe there's another church where that is a typical practice, and maybe it's practiced biblically. Maybe it's practiced rightly. Maybe it's as close to 1 Corinthians 14 as it can possibly be. Maybe it is. And if that church, a different denomination of church, functions that way, and there's still an order and a structure, and it's healthy and it's upbuilding, then that's why we have denominations. There's a place for that to happen. There's a place for that to happen in a consistent manner, Biblical manner, 
that's probably not going to be Wilkesboro Baptist Church. Does that make sense? Our job is to operate in an order and a structure that would be healthy and edifying for the body of Christ. And, and my job as your pastor, our job as elders and as a staff is to make sure that typically our worship services function in a way that is ordered so that the body of Christ is built up, built up so that we're not distracted in, uh, from what it is that we're here to do, which is glorify Jesus. So, that's my take on uh, speaking in tongues and the sign gifts. If you don't agree, that's okay. If you do agree, that's great, fantastic. If you want to read some more, I've got plenty of other books that I can suggest to you. I've, I've read the extreme versions. It's all gone away. I've read the other versions. Hey, we need to practice that um, even today. In any case, what we need to know is that Scripture's got to be our guide. That's the only reason I'm not a true, full-on, absolute cessationist. I just don't think it's found in Scripture. And I, I, I've tried to tell you, I, I'm going to say what the Bible says, even if, even if some of what the Bible says makes me a tad bit on the uncomfortable side. We ought to be okay with that. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 